This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Mason Jenkins? This case was the topic of a documentary titled Life with Murder. It's about a brother who murdered his sister and how his parents supported him after the homicide. Mason Jenkins was born in 1977. He lived in Chatham, Kent, Ontario, Canada with his father Brian, his mother Leslie, and his sister Jennifer. His sister was about two years younger than him. Brian sold industrial chemicals for a living and Leslie had been a teacher, but then became a mental health worker. From the age of 12, Mason had periodically been in institutions after committing a variety of crimes, including robbery and car theft. In late 1997, Mason was in jail after allegedly committing theft. On December 27, he was released and returned to his residence. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On January 6, 1998, Sometime between 4 and 5.10 p.m., 20-year-old Mason Jenkins retrieved a single-shot 22 caliber rifle. He made his way into the living room where his 18-year-old sister Jennifer was sitting in a chair, eating popcorn and watching television. He shot her five times with the rifle, three times in the head and two times in the chest in the area near her heart. She died as a result of being shot in the chest. He dragged her body across the living room, down the basement steps, and left her body in the basement after covering it with a blanket. At 4.45 p.m., Mason called his mother and asked when she was coming home. Normally, his mother would have arrived home alone, but this day was different because she was picking Brian up. Mason realized that Brian and Leslie were coming home together. At about 5.10 p.m., Mason's parents arrived home, Leslie noticed the trail of blood in the living room and followed it to the basement, where she found Jennifer's body. She called 911. The police started investigating. Mason was a suspect right away. He had fled the area on horseback before taking a motor vehicle. It sounds like his cousin lived nearby and they had horses. His horse-assisted flight from justice was not successful, 
he was arrested and charged with murder. At the crime scene, the police found two handwritten wills on the table, which essentially directed all of Mason's parents' property to him in the event that they died. Mason had written the wills and forged his parents' signatures. Mason had also left a handwritten note, which tried to make it look as though armed intruders had committed the murder. It said something to the effect of, we were here, we killed Jennifer, and by the way, we kidnapped Mason. I guess the intruders were supposed to be worried that somebody else would take credit for the crime. Mason was interviewed by the police. His initial story was consistent with that intruder narrative. Mason said that four men pulled up to the house in a white van. They exited the vehicle. Two of them were carrying guns. He retrieved his single-shot twenty-two caliber rifle, but felt powerless against multiple assailants. He was kidnapped by the men. The men must have killed his sister. Mason went to trial in 2001 and was convicted of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Due to the faint hope clause, he had a chance of getting out of prison as early as 2014, long before 25 years had passed. Mason appealed his conviction multiple times. He was denied each time. By 2007, he had exhausted all his appeals. At this point, his story had changed. It would change several times over the next few years. Now, instead of a group of four intruders being responsible for Jennifer's death, Mason said that he accidentally shot her with the 22 caliber rifle. He was bringing it downstairs. He placed it on a coat rack. When he went to grab it again, it magically discharged. Out of all the possible trajectories of the bullet, it just happened to fatally strike Jennifer. Rather than call 911, Mason thought a better strategy would be to shoot his sister four more times and drag her body to the basement. He wanted to make it look like a murder that he could blame on someone else. The story did not make sense for a number of reasons, including the fact that no one would ever respond to an accident by committing a homicide, and it did not explain the mysterious handwritten wills on the table. As time went on, Mason again changed his story. He now admitted that it was his intent to kill his parents. He claimed that he couldn't go through with this plan due to compassion for his father. In reality, his plan was derailed by the fact that his parents were coming home together at the same time instead of coming home at different times as usual. And his weapon was a single-shot rifle, so it would have been difficult for him to kill both of them if they arrived at the same time. Mason was still sticking with the accidental shooting story regarding his sister's death, now suggesting that his sister was alive after being shot, but severely wounded, so he shot her four more times to end her suffering. So on the day he planned to kill his parents, he accidentally killed his sister. A substantial and unbelievable coincidence. At the end of the Life with Murder documentary, Mason indicates that he has more of the truth to reveal in the future. It's almost like he's saying that he's not lying, he has just failed to tell the entire truth. Ryan Jenkins became sick during the trial and the appeals. He lost 100 pounds and was diagnosed with diabetes. He died in 2016. He was only 67 years old. Mason was permitted to attend his funeral. As far as I know, Mason Jenkins is still in prison at the time making this video. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 
6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now moving to my analysis. It seems fairly clear that Mason Jenkins is guilty of first-degree murder, not only by the legal standard, but in reality. There's no question he did it, and no question he has repeatedly lied to avoid taking responsibility. One of the most surprising parts of this story is how Brian and Leslie Jenkins supported their son after he murdered their daughter. This is an area of emphasis in the documentary. We see that Mason's parents visited him in prison. They supported him. For a long time, they believed Mason accidentally killed Jennifer. I will first analyze the situation with Mason, then move on to his parents. Mason was in an interesting position throughout this story. He likes having the support of his parents as he remains in prison. He realizes that if he tells the truth about the murder, he might alienate his parents. At the same time, Mason is approaching hearings that could potentially lead to early release. His best chance of being released is to tell the truth, to take responsibility for the homicide. This is a dilemma. If he tells the truth, he may get out of prison early, but will alienate his parents. If he doesn't tell the truth, he will stay in prison, but his parents will still visit him and support him. As Mason approaches his opportunities to be heard on the issue of parole, he started to test out different versions of his story, like he was trying to find a balance that would be acceptable to everybody. Maybe there was a way he could thread the needle. He would admit enough responsibility to impress parole officials, but not enough to push away his parents. He keeps changing this mixture. Mason makes adjustments in his story that get him a little bit closer to the truth. He notices that his parents are not really adversely reacting to his admissions, so he continues to accept more responsibility. Mason is highly manipulative and calculating. None of this is about remorse. It's all about weighing costs and benefits. He avoided offering explanations by saying that he blocked certain events out of his memory, which is incredibly convenient. His insight is so poor that he thought people would actually believe his stories over time, he came to realize that people were not believing the stories. In his latest version of the story, Mason offers some insight into his motive. He claims that when he was in prison at Christmas time in 1997, he started to realize that he was not achieving his goals, but other people around him were. He became envious. He wanted what other people had. He believed that money could solve his problems, and he thought he could get money by killing his parents and his sister. This motive was a combination of shame, embarrassment, revenge, and material gain. He wanted to eliminate the people he thought were judging him and take all they had. Moving to the next question, what was going on with the behavior of Mason's parents? Here are a few key items that stood out to me with the behavior of Mason's parents as featured in the documentary. Item number one, 
The position that Brian and Leslie Jenkins were in is difficult to imagine. There is no decision that they could have made which would have been universally approved by the public. If they rejected Mason, they would be thought of as cold and callous. If they accepted him as they did, they would be thought of as gullible and as in denial. In addition, simply the fact that Mason was their son makes the couple look guilty themselves. They raised a son who could murder his sister. Item number two. Both Mason and his parents were reluctant to discuss or ask about the details of the crime. This wasn't just Mason striking that balance that I talked about before, between staying in prison and alienating his parents. His parents didn't want to discuss the details either. They didn't want to risk alienating Mason. He was all they had left. They lost their daughter, and they were desperately trying to hang on to their son. From the very beginning, the couple was focused on mitigating their loss. When Brian was being interviewed by the police, they were telling him about how they would clean his house for him when the investigation was completed. Brian had a strong emotional reaction to this, indicating that he wanted to grab onto every inch of what he had. He did not want them to clean the house. He was so desperate to hang on to everything he could, he didn't even want the crime scene evidence to be destroyed. Item number three, the parents appeared to be in denial. Leslie did not seem to have strong emotional reactions, at least not in the documentary, like perhaps she was able to detach from the tragic reality. Brian admitted that he wanted to believe Mason's story. He maintained his belief in the accident story for years when he never should have believed it in the first place. The couple seemed fixated on the idea that, even though Brian had an extensive criminal history, he had never been violent before. Item number four, Mason's parents not only supported him, they trusted him. They would spend several days with him in a special residence at the prison. It was like a little apartment. In the kitchen, there were four knives hanging on the wall. Prison guards would check on the family four times a day, but that still leaves plenty of time for Mason to finish his original plan, killing his parents. Also, I have to wonder if allowing a convicted murderer access to knives is a good idea, mostly because of the stabbing part. Item number five. Brian and Leslie were harshly judged in their community. They said that people would be walking down the street toward them and then turn around before reaching them. They could not sell their house because a murder took place in it. Being rejected by the community probably only drove the couple closer to Mason. Now moving to my final thoughts. Brian and Leslie Jenkins were put in an impossible position. What they didn't realize is that when Jennifer was murdered by Mason, they lost both their daughter and their son. One was dead and the other one was a killer. In a way, this story reminds me of Stephen King's book, Pet Cemetery. In that story, dead pets would be buried in this creepy cemetery, which would resurrect them, but they came back as killer zombies. Like people would bury animals there to try to cheat the natural order of life and death, and they would pay the price for that. After Mason committed murder, his fate was sealed. He would always be a killer. Yet his parents maintained this hope of cheating the system, bringing him back to life, so to speak. Perhaps Mason could be redeemed, and perhaps his redemption would mean that his parents did not fail. Maybe everybody was trying to escape the shame of who Mason had become. Mason's parents would say that Mason was a part of them. In this sense, I think that Mason really killed everybody on the day he murdered Jennifer. He did not kill his parents physically, but he did kill them emotionally. His level of betrayal sent them into a confusing zone of emotions, 
which were derived from a fear of loss and an overwhelming sense of grief. Mason single-handedly devastated his family. Instead of reflecting on his crime, he would go on to spend years in prison fantasizing about his eventual release. Perhaps Mason is also in denial, unwilling to accept that he destroyed his own life as well as the lives of his sister and parents. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network.